Hello everyone and welcome to the Artistic Futures podcast. My name is Marie and in this series I will be meeting a range of people who work in opera and are keen to share their passion with the next generation. From singers to conductors, directors to composers, you will get an insight into how a range of artists built on their careers, turning what they enjoyed doing and were good at into a profession. It will also be full of useful tips and advice for those of you who would be tempted to give it a go. So, let's get started. In this episode, I had the privilege to meet composer and virtuoso canon player Maya Youssef, moving slightly away from opera. I met her in her home in West London, and she very kindly showed me her beautiful instrument. There will be some musical examples throughout the episode, so you are in for a treat. Maya grew up in Syria's capital, Damascus, where she fell in love with the sound of the canoon. Now based in the UK, Maya's debut album, Syrian Dreams, has led to many awards and performances on prestigious stages such as the BBC Proms and WOMAD. In 2020, Maya was commissioned by Opera North to compose and record a sound journey on the theme of walking home for BBC Arts and Arts Council England's Culture in Quarantine programme. She then recorded her second album, Finding Home, which features a string quartet made of players from the Orchestra of Opera North. She will be performing with them at the Howard Assembly Room in Leeds on the 9th of April. full of music from everywhere. It, it's like the ideal environment for a dreamy child to grow up in because I had like literature from all over the world. Um, my parents are very intellectual writers and translators, lovers of music. So we had books from everywhere, you know, you know, from African literature to, to Russian literature to, I don't know, Finnish literature to old Arabic literature, everything. And also that reflected the same in music. So we had classical music, folk, pop, fusion, uh, pff, everything. Bossa Nova. I was singing and tapping all the time. And then my parents put me in a music institute. So it was only natural that I started my journey with music because the environment was just perfect for that. Yeah. Were, were your parents musical as well? Did they no, the, nobody. I was the first musician in my family, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, just my, my my dad had the eclectic taste, so he just really loved music from yeah. everywhere. My mom's side, she really liked the traditional Arabic, the classical Arabic side, yeah. you know. Like the Um Kultum and Abdel Halim and uh, Fayrouz and all of these big names of, of the Arab classical world. Yeah. So I had, you know, a very rich sonic environment to very grab up. Yeah. 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 Okay. How did you pick up the canoon? I mean... Is that right that it's that it's an instrument that was traditionally played by men? Well, or... it, 
it became so <laughs> yeah. there was like a societal shift. Yeah. And um, if you go back to the Abbasid era, um, then you, you, there was a tradition called Al Qiyan. So Al Qiyan were slave girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the Arab culture, uh, because it's mostly patriarchal, yeah. people would look down at them now, but their importance as uh, carriers and preservers and, and emanators of heritage and tr- tradition was immense, was huge, mm-hmm. because basically there were huge schools of them learning how to play the oud, learning how to sing, learning how to play the qanun, um, you know, learning how to make and recite poetry. Um, And they used to basically go from a household to the other um, and, you know, spread this tradition and preserve it uh, in a way that would have been impossible to, you know. So we had many qanun players at that time, but then there was a societal shift where it was not okay for women to play traditional Arabic music. This is something that is, I think, like... Late nineteenth century, yeah. okay. um, and perhaps perhaps sooner. I mean, that depends on the country and the dynamics yeah, of the yeah. country. And but uh, around that time, you know, it, this they went underground, and then there was the fascination of the West. You know, in the like early twentieth century, there is even like a book by an Egyptian writer called Yahya Haqi. The name of the book is Hayya Bina Ila Concert which means let's go to the concert house, which is basically, it's a love letter to all things classical music, to the experience of going to a concert hall, listening to, you know, or an orchestra playing. And there was this whole fascination of of the West. And therefore it became encouraged to play Western classical uh, instruments because that was a desirable thing. It's so Um, interesting because at the same time in the Western classical there were so many influences from the East. Exactly. So it's it's so nice. It was like an exchange. There was an exchange for sure. I mean, you can see it even in the way people dressed. My mum used to have these tilted glasses and very mini skirts. Yeah, I've seen photos of that from Iran. Yeah, exactly. It was the same in Syria, you know, translated in culture, fashion, everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and music was not immune to that. Yes. My story with the instrument started when uh, I was eight. I was heading to the music institute. It was, I must say, when I call, think back, it was pretty rigorous, um, which was really good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like intensive ear training, and it was mostly in the classical you know, uh, okay. so solfeggio and all of that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, um, you know, rhythmic training, how to translate rhythms into your body and so you can have yeah, yeah. a really good sense of rhythm. Um, so we did that for two years when I was between six and um, and eight. And mm-hmm. when I was eight, I was supposed to pick one musical instrument. So my parents said, well then, well, I said, Oh. <laughs> um, I, I think I, I, I just took it on, but I took a couple of lessons. I wasn't in love with it until yeah. one day I was heading to the music institute and um, uh, with my mother. Um, I was eight and it was a hot summer's day and um, the taxi driver turned the radio on and there came the sound of this. And I was like... <gasps> What is this? <laughs> I want to play it. <laughs> and uh, he laughed at me. He said, this instrument is for men. You are a girl. Forget about it. It will never happen. And um, I said, it will happen. You will see. <laughs> My mum liked that. She knew I was a rebel. She didn't 
give much weight to the conversation. She also struck her shoulders and, you know, yeah, she's yeah, just... Yeah. And then that night, the head of the institute walks in to the music uh, theory class or video class and says, I have an announcement to make. There is a canoeing class if anybody is interested. Oh, wow. So yeah. That was, that was everything uh, happened Destiny. Destiny. Um, and uh, just, if you're interested, just, you know, come after the class and sign up. And obviously I ran out and I was at the top of the queue and... Um, my mum, mum's jaw was, you know, down to the to the earth and uh, <laughs> like canoe and water on earth. Um, yeah. But yeah, in in two days, that lovely violin was returned, yeah. and I had a huge canoe that was five times my size waiting for me on the yeah. um, table after school. I mean, for people who are listening and have never seen a canoe, maybe we can try to describe what it looks like. It, yeah. it's, it's an amazing instrument. How many strings do you have on there? So it's 78 strings. Um, they're organized in courses of threes or twos. Mm -hmm. And um, it's basically, it's a sound box. It's trapezoidal in shape with the strings tied up on, on both ends. So the, on top of the sound box, you have these sound holes because they allow the sound to resonate. Um, a bit like you're having a guitar. Precisely, yeah, yeah. it's exactly the same. Uh, one of the key components that allow the sound to really resonate is are these bits. So these are these patches of skin to the right of the instrument. They are basically the bridge lies on top of, of, of those patches and they're made of fish skin. So when I go, the sound basically resonates through everything, through the sound holes, through the fish skin and comes out really reverberant. Yeah. And you have these knobs, metallic knobs, yes. to, next to tuning pegs. So basically they are like the black keys on the piano. I see. Yeah, yes. except for they can do quarter tones, which do not, does not exist in Western music. So yes. in Western music you have, you know, flats and sharps. In, in Arabic music you have half flats and half sharps. Every time you pull the lever down, the, the pitch goes quarter tone down, um, and every yeah. time you put, pull a lever up, the pitch goes a quarter tone up. So that's an E. E half flat. Flat. Three quarter flat. So, so this is really makes it really rich chromatically. Um, mm -hmm. And on scale wise, it can perform Arabic music and Western classical music, can perform really anything. Imagine before in the 20th century we didn't have those, so the canoe player used to have to tune. But now you just go like, okay, you just you yeah. prepare before you play, uh, and then as you play you modulate. So look, so the right hand is, is playing while the left hand is really quickly switching up and down. Yeah. And also it can do, do this really cute flutter, so yeah. Uh, this is really beautiful. <laughs> Did you have any like role models who inspired you to, well, to take on a career as a canon player? I, I didn't discover. I didn't have female role models. Yeah, um, I was wondering that. Yeah, before. which which when I think about, uh, you know, in, about it in retrospect, is a bit sad. <laughs> um, but I mean, I I looked at other powerful women yeah. really performing really beautifully and powerfully and freely like um you know aziza mustafa zada when we were little we used to listen to a lot of jazz so mm -hmm. ella fitzgerald just like yeah. <laughs> um Delicious. so yeah so obviously i've always exposed to women who were complete legends you know when mm -hmm. i was little but not in canoe 
Did you, I, I don't know when you came to the UK, but did you manage to have a career as a canon player in Syria before you came here? Or was it something that was, wasn't possible? No, it was actually. Yeah. I had a really busy career before, before I even, you know, I mean, I have been performing since I was really little. And um, when I was 12, I won Best Musician in Syria. And then we sort of like did, did a mini tour. And then as part of, your studies you have to perform at least 10 concerts yeah. a year and also I was very lucky to join an all-female uh, band to bring back to life that tradition of Fakian um, where only women just sort of played the tradition and, and brought it back to life. Yeah we toured China, Denmark, Greece, where else? Italy, um, we, we went a lot, Netherlands, so we went a lot around uh, Europe, so I had a really busy life before I left Syria in 2007. But I came to the UK in 2012, before that I moved to Dubai, so that was a long time before yeah, the war started. Okay. Yeah, that was a really good time because I was alone all of the sudden, you know, just like, I was just playing 14 hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then I was offered to go and teach Maqam and, and Qanun in Sultan Qaboos University in Masqat for two years. And then I had a child and the war, war broke and I found this completely new scheme in the UK called Tier 1 Exceptional Talent. Oh, so yeah. I applied for that and I was one of the very first people to enter the UK on that scheme. Yeah, that was actually my next question. How did you get about like you know, getting your first CD release in the UK. Yeah. And, uh, so that was through that scheme. That yeah, no, actually, it wasn't related because, oh, okay. you know, funny enough, they, it wasn't, there wasn't much help. So it was like, okay, you're here, that's it. <laughs> you make your way. <laughs> um, so I had to, it was really hard for, for me at the beginning, yeah. you know, to make contacts and just understand yeah, the I culture. Imagine, I imagine it was really hard when you arrive in a country you don't know and you, you try to build a career as a musician and yeah. you don't have the contacts, you don't know how it works or the no. industry works. That must be like really daunting. It was very daunting. It was yeah. very daunting because I was expected, you know, I was having high expectations of myself as well. Because, yeah. Okay, I'm here and exceptional type either and the Arts Council of England endorsed me so I'm just supposed to be you know doing 10 concerts a, a month or something mm -hmm. so um, and obviously also financially speaking that you have to earn a living to, to be course. able to continue so yeah it was very very daunting and mm -hmm. um, I was really lucky to have people believe in me and like people like Max Reinhardt if he, he ever listens hello Max he just went about and and told everybody in the music business that I exist in. Um, so I had people really believing in me and, and with that amazing faith and support, I ended up making the first album with uh, Harmonium Indie, which was amazing. And um, yeah, for it to be produced by Joe Boyd, who produced Nick Drake, and for it to be recorded by Jerry Boyce, who recorded the uh, Buena Vista Social Club, which I used to listen to when I was a kid, you know, so I was like, yeah, this is mad. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's all with the grace of God and grace of, of what I like to call earth angels. So yeah. yeah. So you've also been performing on amazing stages, like for the BBC Proms, for Womad, uh, after the release of your first CD. I'm wondering what, what that felt like and what it's like to be on a stage like this, sharing, sharing your music for people. It's amazing. It really is magic. 
It's a, it's a very humbling experience, you know? You think, I mean, it's just because of what happened to me in my personal life and because of my experience of the Syrian war. I just yeah. relate to music in a way that is different to, to the way that other people relate to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just see my music as a prayer, you know? And I see myself as a humble servant, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm just here just to do my like small drop in the ocean and obviously it's it's amazing for when people really receive that and um, you see that you know that people's eyes change after the concert and, and the way they talk to you it's one of the most magical most meaningful things that a musician can ever hope for I was also wondering um, like in Western classical music and especially in opera often like the composer and performers are quite separate uh -huh. entities, but, but you do both, you do compose yeah. and you do play. And I was wondering if you feel the two aspects like um, complement each other and how you see the, the links between composing and performing. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, perhaps I should bring you back to why I started writing, maybe that yeah. will give you some perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, obviously all my life I was performing works of classical composers, like for instance, I did Vivaldi Four Seasons with a symphony orchestra for my graduation exam, which is nuts. Um, but also, <laughs> and also works of classical Arabic uh, music. Um, and I never had, you know, any urge whatsoever to, to compose. Mm -hmm. And then there was like one key moment in 2012 when I was, obviously the war started, Mm -hmm. And uh, there was this swelling inside me of, you know, like, oh my god, will I ever see my parents again? Will I ever yeah, see yeah. The, the places that I love again? And my, my child was, was about four at that time and was sleeping next to me. And there was a, an image on the news of a small girl who looked so much like my child. She died in her bedroom in Damascus. And in that moment, I just closed the door so I didn't wake my son up. I held a canoe and music stopped coming out. And that was the title track of my first album, Syrian Dreams. It was completely an illogical process, completely intuitive, that came from the depth of my gut. <laughs> um, you know, and um, from that point, I started writing to heal, to understand what's happening, to share that journey. So, this is how composition came to me you know mm -hmm. it's not like oh it would be nice to write and let's sat, sit down yeah, and make a logical effort yeah, to, so it doesn't come from an intellectual does not place you know it's just all emotional very to deal with absolutely with what you are going to i mean when it comes to editing and everything and, and arrangement it's yes i yeah. have to engage but the place from which the music is born is always the intuitive is always the, the illogical yeah you know and i learned to surrender to that you know, so that's why I just don't see, you know, a separation between myself as the composer and, the, you know, uh, and the performer. So you've spoken about the inspiration for your first album. Um, are there other things that have inspired you, like in, in your compositions, like in the last few years? So with the second album, Finding Home, I did uh, a track called actually two tracks so these are both tracks that were performed by uh, opera, members of Opera North's orchestra um, the phenomenal people you know um, <laughs> it always starts with a prayer it always starts with a with a seed I think okay um, there was a lot of fear everybody was going into panic 
because of COVID and it was lockdown and and I started seeing or praying for everybody to walk together, all humanity walking together towards a better, more compassionate future for everybody in the earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kept holding to that thought and then the music started coming out, you know, and, and also same thing with Upper North, you know, Silver Lining, you know, um, yeah. it was... I've listened to that a lot. Oh, thank you! I went on walks and I was listening to your tracks and, and the other tracks as well, part of this project, which was a, a project in lockdown where different composers um, yeah. composed um, pieces of music on a project called Walking, Walking Home. Home. Yeah. yeah. Oh, amazing! Yeah, that makes me very happy. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, I mean... Yeah. One thing that the Syrian war taught me, it was like, you know, experiencing the war um, was sort of a dress rehearsal for what to come. So like when this came, I was like, I sort of been there in a slightly different way. So I'm just going to do whatever I did before, which is pray and play (laughs) and compose and just make music. So yeah, it's 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 just holding on to that thread of hope and just just continue going on, never giving up, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in April you will be performing at the Howard Assembly Room. I think there are players of the orchestra yes. kind of performing ah, with you as I'm well. I'm so happy about that! <laughs> I'm so, so happy about that! Yeah. yeah, yeah. well, are you looking forward to it? What does it like to work with them as well on, on, on your album? It was an absolute dream. Um, yeah, this was, I mean... It was quite a musical adventure because I've never written for a string quartet and this is something I've been wanting to do forever. And um, to work with them brought such uh, lushness, such richness to the music that I'm so grateful. I'm still like, it's still not computing in my head that I'm going to be playing with them live. I'm just so excited about that. Um, I can jump. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for the amazing heart they put into the music and I, I truly cannot wait to play with them live. Arabic music and the, the, the tradition of passing on how to learn Qanun is oral, meaning you have to go to a teacher, he would just play a phrase and you have to copy him. He would not explain to you how he did what he did. Mm-hmm. He would just go, just copy me. And, and so it's a, like a long process of trial and error. Um, and that makes people really overwhelmed by the thought of even trying. Like for instance, when it comes to learning maqam, which is the Arabic modal system of, yeah. of, of music, 
it's really sad that there is a, a huge schism between practice and between theory. So a lot of people end up reading a lot of books and getting even more and more and more and more confused. So which is why I created systems for everything from ornamentation to maqam to how to improvise to, you know, how to relate to Arabic music. Like for instance, if I am playing with a Western musician, one of the first things that I would say to you, it's expected of me to perform the same melody in infinite number of ways. Mm -hmm. Like for instance, there's so many ways that you, and if you do it the same way, um, you're not a good performer. Mm -hmm. So this is like, to, to somebody who is in, in the Western, you know, um, classical music, this is like, oh my gosh, this is completely <laughs> the opposite because everything is transcribed. Yeah, you, you just write what's written. Yes, like, absolutely. Yeah. So, so yeah, there is a huge, huge gap into how to, you know, present Arabic music and kanon playing in a way that is relatable, easy to understand for anybody from any background, whether mm -hmm. you're Arabic, from an Arabic background, from, whether you're from Belgium, from Japan. I have students from everywhere, you know? And the important thing is that the system allows you to get it regardless. Yeah. You know? So, so yeah, because I cannot hear one more person coming and telling me, uh, I love it, but I, it's, I think it's too much and I can't handle it. I just, that drives me mad, mad really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've read on your website that you're also working on a PhD. That's right. I quit. You quit. Oh, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. But it sounded like a really interesting project. I, I still, I'm doing the project itself. That was a project called the Seven, Seven Gates. Gates. Yes. That project started because I started working with a theatre company called Oily Cart. Mm -hmm. um, they are a therapeutic theatre company based in London and they do theatre for children with autism and profound and multiple learning disabilities. So I had the great fortune of co-composing the music for the show and then touring with them in, in a national tour across schools and, and venues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen many miracles, big and small, you know, from children coming in completely bewildered to leaving out completely serene to children who's never vocalized or spoken, you know, laughing out loud. We've seen, literally, we've seen some some truly hugely touching things mm -hmm. and because of that I wanted to create something similar because the, the Syrian war was breaking and with the support from um, music director of, of Audi Cart, Max Reinhardt, I created um, the Seven Gates of Damascus which is a music storytelling project that takes children through seven gates in order to get to a place of peace or home. It's simply an interactive experience that is offered both in Arabic and in English. It was originally created for um, children with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, for refugee children, mm -hmm. but I opened it up for local communities just because I found that it um, creates narratives of empathy because they started to think, you know, like the children started to think, wait a second, this boy and girl were traveling alone? That's not right. <laughs> Why is that? And it's sort of yeah. they start it starts to open these discussions and these create this bubble of empathy basically, which is what I'm trying to do. I'm happy to be doing that and some of the dates of the tour for both the local communities and for the local refugee families and children. That's amazing. And also with the news at the moment, like 
you know, like another war starting in Ukraine and all that. And mm. I'm sure it must also bring some like um, emotion to you uh, yeah. as you've seen your country going for war. Do you think music is a way of bringing peace in some some way? Totally. I mean, my ancestors used music for healing since thousands and thousands of years. You know, I'm not inventing anything new here. I just am a firm believer that music heals, particularly particularly when you infuse it with prayers and intentions for peace and healing. I'd like to believe that my prayers are answered and I usually see it in the faces of people and because it goes straight to the heart. You brought up the, the war in Ukraine and one of the um, things that were commissioned to me by Oprah North was writing a lullaby for their lullaby um, project mm -hmm. and this was inspired by an image I've seen of a mother holding her baby with an explosion, with a bomb explosion in the background and she is in her bubble of hope. She's just walking forward to, towards that better future. And for that I wrote Lullaby, A Promise of a Rainbow. Um, and I, when I play this track and when I play those, you know, pieces are extremely emotional. I just feel it in my body, you know, it just, it's a very physical experience. So that's me. Not everybody believes in the power of intention and power of music, but I, I believe in it with all my heart. If you maybe had some advice for young performers who are, or young composers who are um, thinking of embarking on a career, uh, and especially for young young performers who are from less represented backgrounds. You need to go for it with all, all the energy, all the heart that you have. <laughs> there is, it's nothing is gonna given be given to you on a plate of gold. Don't think that there's anything you know as luck. But if you have beautiful, powerful music that you have to offer, um, and enough fire in your belly to make this music heard, there's nothing in the world that's gonna stop you. So there are people who will shrug their shoulders, there will be people who, you're not gonna be everybody's cup of tea, that is normal. Um, I still have people telling me that I'm too radical, I'm not traditional enough, I'm not that and not that. Doesn't matter. Um, just keep going and just because the world needs to hear your music. Maybe what's the most difficult uh, aspect of being a performer um, and then what, what's the best thing about being a performer? Logistics? <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm not designed for this, I'm an artist, why do I have to deal with this? Yeah. Um, but particularly like for instance because I did this album independently from and even though I got funding from Arts Council England and from PRS and amazing support from people like Ofra North and, and you know the British Museum there was an immense amount of details to, to, to tackle and to look after. Um, so that was that was hard, I'm not going to lie. Mm. <laughs> um, but what makes it all click into place is when you share it with people. And when you get those messages that your music helped people go through a dark time. When, when, or when you have that look on, on people's faces after a performance. When you have that, then you think it's worth it and I'm just going to keep going on. So that's what I always hold on to.
You've been listening to the Artistic Futures podcast with the inspirational Maya Youssef. Next time, I'll be speaking to choral conductor and Opera North Youth Chorus Master Nicolas Show. If you have any burning questions for our future guests or would like to suggest people you would like to meet, please email education at opranorth.co.uk. You can also find us on Twitter, search Opera North Education. See you next time.